This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Monday, May 6th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. With 20-some-odd, and given Gravel and Gabbard, some of these Democratic candidates are indeed odd, but with 20-some-odd candidates, I strongly suspect that we are overrating one aspect of the Democratic primary, the impact of the debates. Early stages before people get on debate stages and most of America gets to know them, people seem to be playing the identity politics primary a little bit or the, the strategist primary of who are my, who's my neighbor going to vote for. Claire Malone of the 538 podcast a couple weeks ago. I do not believe the debates will allow us to get to know the candidates. I think it will be a couple, one and a half, maybe two hour sessions, 10 candidates on a stage at a time. It works out to about seven minutes of yak time per candidate if you factor in moderator questions, the announcer guy setting the scene, and audience questions. Oh, yes, the DNC is in favor of these forms of questions, quote, so that regular people can have more of a say in the questions asked. Hi, my name is Steve. I'm a father of two. I worry about the future of our economy and what the world's going to look like for my kids. So my question is, which of you is John Delaney and which one's Jay Inslee? Also, is there a guy named, uh, hold on, Wayne Messam up there? Or is that a member of the 1983 Edmonton Oilers? Thanks. Yeah. So I think the debates might be a bit of a blur or a hash, or maybe Kirsten will cancel out Corey, who contradicts Amy, who will call out Julian, who will rebut Seth, who will undercut Kamala. And I've just named the people with actual credentials to merit their inclusion. We've not even countenanced any kind of sustained Yang thing. I absolutely understand that we hope the debates will be a great separator, only they're being hailed as being the great separator for probably two-thirds of the people in the field. Oh, he's the one, she's the one who will benefit from the debates. I mean, when, when the voters hear about Booker's baby bonds or Harris's lift act, or when they just learn of all of Elizabeth Warren's 43 white papers in her allotted seven and a half minutes, that'll do the trick. We haven't had debates yet. Warren is apparently terrific in front of crowds. And once we have debates, it could totally change the equation here. That was Dan Savage from the Strangers Blabbermouth podcast. Here's John Podhoritz hyping Pete Buttigieg's chances on the commentary podcast. Let's just talk about his positives in debates and everything else. The, the positive is that I think it is very clear that he is the uh, smartest and canniest and most natural politician in the race. He has uh, he hits grace notes. You know, at a at a sort of like it's like he's got a four hundred he's got a four hundred batting average hitting grace notes even with difficult questions. People like that can dominate and devastate in debates if they do it right. I don't know. I'm sure that some candidates will have some sort of moments, but an interesting thing is going on where more and more people are being added to the field. We're looking at the debates more and more desperately to be the separator, but it works in the opposite direction. The more people who run, the more the overall power of the debates gets diluted. If anything, all those people on the stage may allow Joe Biden, if he's still the front runner, to say three or four unobjectionable sentences and remain the front runner. 
There's a collective action problem with the Democrats, as there was with the Republicans last time around. Too many of them are running. There's almost no disincentive to run. It increases your profile. It aids you with getting your message out. It makes you more in demand for all sorts of gigs that aren't president of the United States. The one thing it doesn't do is help your party. Of course, if Barack Obama or Bill Clinton heeded those kinds of warnings, we may not have had a Democratic president over the last 20 years. And if Donald Trump had not plunged ahead with no consideration to party or people other than himself, yeah, okay, it wouldn't be Donald Trump. But what do I know? All I have is access to this here microphone. I, I have not had to yield it to the mayor from Miramar, Florida, or the representative from Niles, Ohio. How long have I had access? Well, it has been, in fact... Five years. Do you realize this? Five years of the gist is a news and analysis podcast every day. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with all of our five years or maybe just the last four minutes, but somewhere in your medial temporal lobe, something the gist has said may have stuck. Either way, this week is for you. We will be celebrating the gist's five-year anniversary all this week in a way that we know how by talking my face off. We will look back at where we've been and look forward to a Johnny Walker Black on the rocks. I bet you thought I was going to go with the temporal there and not the lacorial, but that is indeed what I decided to do. You should have figured this out, I don't know, four and a half years ago. And in the spiel today, I will offer my take on why podcasting is the medium of the moment. The spiel, by the way, is a five to 10 minute segment at the end of each show. It's what in newspapers might be called a column, what in public radio would be called a host piece, and what in Soviet Russia would be called treason. Also this week, we'll be playing voicemails that you, the listeners, provided, commenting on segments you liked, segments that made you laugh, segments that changed your mind. But now I'm joined by the same person who joined me in episode one of The Gist. Jad Abumrad is a prolific radio and podcasting guru. But it's interesting because he's prolific in the exact opposite manner that I am. He cares and attends to each second of sound in his finely honed programs, Radio Lab, and More Perfect. I talked to Jad about those shows and about the future of podcasting. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Oh, come on, Mike. Only one. This is Mary from Harrisville, New Hampshire. And hello to you and to your faithful staff. The most useful thing I ever heard you do was say that Nancy Pelosi was our designated driver. 
and that if she says we shouldn't be talking about impeachment, maybe we should back the fuck off and not talk about impeachment. Nancy Pelosi is a member of the friend group who is not downing shots on New Year's Eve. She maybe sips one cocktail and watches as her friends get up and dance on the bar, but she knows how to bring them home. Nancy Pelosi is the dowdy financial advisor who says maybe you should diversify. She's not the dude with the wraparound shades who yells Bitcoin. Nancy Pelosi's the designated driver. I really like that. And that whole spiel changed the way I thought more thoughtfully about the Mueller report. So thanks for not keeping me a knee-jerk liberal. Five years ago today, although leap year complicates it, so let's just say between you and I and my next guest, five years ago today, I welcomed a guest on a show that would become The Gist. Actually, I think he welcomed me. The first episode of The Gist was me being interviewed by Jad Abumrad of Radiolab. Jad is here again. We reconnect. How have you been these last five years, Jad? Hello, Mike. Congratulations, first and foremost, and I have been great. What amount of violence am I doing to your average episode of Radio Lab by listening to it at double speed? <laughs> hey, man, I feel like you're not doing any violence to the to the to the episode itself, uh, and I happen to know that you think probably twice as fast as the average human being. And so it probably works, man. It probably works for you. I can't listen to that stuff, to the stuff we make or anything really at that speed. It doesn't somehow get into my brain and my circuits overload. I'm glad you didn't say, well, you're missing all of my subtleties and cues and the emotional manipulation that you, Jad, put into it is not being visited upon <laughs> me as the listener. If I, I listen you know what, speed. I'm man, glad you didn't say that. I'm, I couldn't care less about that stuff. I mean, I do it... Uh, Obviously, to try and manipulate you and to do all the things that we do as storytellers, but like, because I, you know, having done this now for, wait for it, almost 18, 19 years, um, yeah. we've had times where you put something out and it totally kills and you feel like you're a god. And then we've had times where I'm like, this is going to blow minds and you put it out there and it's a big thud, it's a big silence. And we've had times, like we did a story about a hockey player, I don't know, about three, three four months ago. <sighs> And I was like, yeah, this is, this is a oh, cool story. I cried. I love that story. Oh, it was, it's and, and so good. We loved it, but I thought, like, whatever. People aren't going to like a story yeah. about a hockey player. And it just killed. So I never know what how people will respond to it because it's you don't know where people are at. You try to know, but you don't really know. So whatever. You know, I'll, you know we, we throw everything we, are, we have into each episode, and, and then you just let it go. And hopefully it hits people and, hope, mm-hmm. you know. So... I, I don't get too precious about that stuff. Are your tastes in your personal life towards the finely crafted things in food, dress, <laughs> drink, decor? <laughs> do I do I dress like Radio Lab? Is that what you mean? <laughs> do you live your life? I, I mean, uh, are you going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah? Give me, give me the pita off. Give me the street food. That's fine. Let's not be too picky about it. Or is there a meticulousness that runs through the entire life of Jad Abumrad? Not the entire, no. Certain things, right? Certain things. Okay, there's like a there's a list of things that uh, I'm fussy about, and then there's a list of things that I'm not. I dress like a like like your average bum, right? Like your average like public radio slash professor slash dad, right? I I I'm not that styly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I'll just wear something that vaguely fits and that maybe has one hole in it. So there's that. In terms of food, I'm not that picky. Where I get picky is obviously like the 
when you make the stories and also like um like right now I'm sitting in my studio and I'm super picky about like what guitar pedals I use to create effects or what like synth that kind of stuff I have a, like, I, I'm super picky about right. gear and about audio stuff and about audio stories but pretty much every other aspect of my life is like I um I'm barely getting by yeah I wonder why, I mean, there are two different types of people, right? So Tom Ford, I was reading about him, is one type. He just can't turn it off. And there's another type where uh, they're like you, like really super the, the top craftsman on one end and then everything else, I guess, uh, totally out the window. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I'm, I'm definitely the opposite of Tom Ford. Like, when I, I turn it off and I'm like, I will coast on the surface of life. I suspect you are more of a Tom Ford type. <laughs> If I had to guess, <laughs> just you are how you are all the time. Yes, that is true. There is no, there is little separation between the persona you get on the mic, off the mic, with the kids, with the girlfriend, everything. That is true. Yeah. But in terms of the detail, too, what is that? What is that uh, of the five personality traits? The conscientiousness. What's the opposite of that? I'm whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. <laughs> so, in the last five years, without more perfect, would you be as happy as you are now? Without more perfect, yeah. Um, did it save you? <laughs> did it save because of the state of our world? Let me put it this way: I started more perfect, which is a sort of a radio lab spinoff, which tries to tell stories about the Supreme Court. I started it because I felt like I didn't know anything about what happens when things go to uh, the Supreme Court, and I felt like I should, just as an American citizen. And also, the stories are really cool. Uh, so yes, I feel like a better American. Not that that feeling matters anymore given the state of america but i do feel like it has made me a better citizen i think you know i like most humans have a tendency towards uh, uh myopia and towards like just thinking that my way is right and it's very very interesting to then take a legal argument from the other side whatever political persuasion you are there's a phrase i heard called steel manning you know where mm -hmm. you like instead of putting up a straw man argument you like you like put up a steel man argument right. you really try and like really make the argument from the other side and like take it Best seriously. version, and, right. Yeah, and that's that's just a cool thing to do no matter no matter what you believe because it really makes you hone your own beliefs and like throw out all these assumptions and just try and like get down to like the, the heart of the matter. Yeah, it's a really good exercise in empathy, which brings me to, I know you've talked about how radio and podcasting are this great empathy machine, but did you hear that invisibilia, which questioned the whole premise of empathy as the way to go in journalism? I didn't, know. What did it say? So it was uh, Hannah doing the piece, and it was a very interesting structure because she did the story of this incel guy and she started off with the premise that he seems pretty horrible, but then she does this report and she gets to know him. And so we get to at least understand things through his eyes. And she says, as a test, we give applicants some raw tape and say, what would you do with this? So they gave the raw tape of Hannah's interview with this incel guy and the, the person who they actually wound up hiring came up with a 180-degree different take on it. And her take was like, we should not be extending empathy to these horrible people because then we do damage to uh, things we believe in, like the fact that, you know, women have agency or the fact that uh, mm -hmm. abuse is wrong. It was a totally different way to think about if we've been doing empathy wrong. And if I, I don't agree with it at all, but it was... In fact, yeah. I so 
empathized with her piece that it both uh, supported her premise while at the same time undermining it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I mean, just based on your description, I don't uh, agree with that either. But I mean, sometimes I think empathy is the wrong word, you know? It's this word that's sort of a, uh, like a, a blanket for any kind of understanding. And I, what I think needs to happen is you need to be able to resonate you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I need to be able to sort of see in the other person's argument something that vibrates within my own being. Now, th- is that empathy? I don't necessarily need to take that person's stuff on. I don't need to own their thing. I don't need to necessarily feel everything they're feeling, but I just need something in me needs to resonate with something in them. Whatever you call that, I feel like that is the has to be the beginning of journalism. It's like a right? recognized shared humanity. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that there is something inherent in the medium that I would say the two most successful and influential shows, This American Life and Radio Lab, are run by guys who aren't just the titular heads, but are working on the shows, I don't know, 80 hours a week. Whereas Dick Wolf has all these shows, you know, on, on NBC or whatever, CBS, where it has his name, but, you know, he maybe writes the first episode and then sets it in motion. Or a chef, Tom Colicchio, opens all these restaurants, and then someone else basically does the job. But what is it? Is it just a coincidence or something about you and Ira that you are in there working these unbelievably long hours on the shows itself? Is that is that a coincidence or is that about podcasting? Hmm. Well, I'm flattered by the question, but I think it's a coincidence. I think what Ira and I do is, and really before podcasting, it was radio. Really, we took sort of these like these production values and these kind of like journalistic values that, that existed in public radio that translate very easily to podcasts. And you sort of just like, and, and stuff where it's like, you want to kind of have a movie, but have it be in a podcast. In, in your work, you create an invitation for others to do the same. Like what you do is kind of genius, right? Like the, the um, to be able to quickly uh, and, and in a deep way process what's happening in the world, right? That I feel like podcasting is great for that. Are you glad, are you glad that NPR has all these rules about what you're not supposed to do? Oh my God, yeah. Some of those rules I think are great, you know, when, when it comes to like making like trustworthy, credible journalism. I think a lot of those rules are, are amazing. And as, as adventurous as Radiolab sometimes sound, it, it, we're very conservative in many ways uh, and follow those same rules. But a lot of those rules, stylistic rules are sometimes hilarious, and I'm glad they ex- exist because it gave us a thing to push against and to, and to launch off of. And, and Oh, my God. That's exactly what my, my supposition was. Yes. You need the thing to push against oh, to yeah. be creative. Yes. Totally. It was like this kind of, you know, there were like conversations we'd get into where we, we make a thing, and you have uh, a little bit of sound design, a little bit of scoring in it. Like, you know, you're telling a story about a Malaysian mangrove, and the person who's talking about this is a guy who's just like, imagine you're in a Malaysian mangrove and you're there, the water is very silent. And then you hear the sound of water and you hear the sound of, uh, you know, birds. And I remember getting the question, which was, like, mm-hmm. are, is that water, was that water recorded in Malaysia? Were, were those birds? And I'm like, no! Like, <laughs> it, what, what, the, nobody would reasonably expect that to be the case. Like, so there are these insane rules. I... 
openly disregard yeah. that stuff. I'll stick up for them on the bird tip. If you have some North American birds in that Malaysian bird <laughs> thing, the birders are going to be on. Oh, well, yeah. I think you need to be uh, judicious with your bird bird scoring, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's like yeah. once we got into a, uh, into some uh, into a thing because our the frog sounds that we had, I think, were the wrong frogs. Um, but yeah, <laughs> was it was Someone's it actually Kermit singing the Rainbow Connection? Was that the problem? Someone <laughs> someone caught that <laughs> for yeah, lovers exactly. and dreamers. Wait a minute, that is not a North American tree frog. It's <laughs> not a North American Kermit. <laughs> and this is the last question: Where do you think this medium may be going? I don't know, man, because I. I'm more confused about podcasting than I've ever been. Huh. Like it's just an it's a real economy now and that's exciting. Like there are people who are making their living doing this, getting rich doing this, right? And that's exciting. That's interesting. That's yeah. new. <laughs> a friend of ours. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Like really rich. You're like, wow. Um so that's yeah. like a new thing. Um at the same time I look at I think I heard one of the dudes from Edison basically say that they they are like the Nielsen of podcasting basically say it's the slowest growing medium we've ever measured Hmm. like the actual number of new listeners is growing but it's growing very methodically and slowly but consistently which is good but it's not like growing at the rate that all the coverage would indicate uh so i don't know man i think like either we're at the beginning of something that's going to grow and go bananas uh or maybe we're going to have some kind of correction I don't know. And through it all, I wonder if shows like Radiolab, which are really expensive and hard to produce and, and just take a lot, I'm wondering if they will survive. I hope they do. I feel really good about our chances, but it is a thought that crosses in my mind. Like, will we be able to do the really like deep dive stuff as podcasting grows? Jad Abumrad is a creator of Radiolab and More Perfect and was the first guest. And as of you are hearing this, the most recent guest on The Gist. Thank you so much, Jet. Man, my pleasure. And Mike, holy, holy moly, congratulations. You are an inspiration. And I look forward to talking to you again in another five years. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Mike, this is John Ringler calling from Henderson, Nevada, the home of your parents, as you told me. My favorite segment is very tough, but I know recently you made me absolutely crack up with Ostrich Court. When you have a malefactor and he's going to fly the coop, you don't take matters into your own hands and you don't let the feds or the state handle him. No, you take him to court. Ostrich Court. I could not get enough Ostrich Court. In fact, I might listen to it again right now. Ostrich Court, where justice is swift and earthbound. Oh yes, oh yes, all rise in Ostrich Court. The Honorable Judge Judy Struthio Camellius presiding. Thanks. Thanks for all you do. I appreciate it so much. Bye-bye. And now the spiel. Progress has no strict definition. If you look around, there are plenty of signs of progress, but there are also plenty of signs of regression and stagnation. I'm not sure if we've progressed that much in the hardest to measure, but most important ways, like how we relate to each other, how much we forgive or empathize or less esoterically, but quite crucially, how we elect. I think we can all agree, though, that we've had a lot of technological progress. So a decent definition of technological progress is an increase in the quality and the quantity of tools that's happened 
Our drugs have become more and better. Our computers have become more and better. Televised entertainment has become more and better. Information has become more, lots, lots more. I don't know if it's become better. Twitter and Facebook have become the most important and potent vectors of news information and dissemination to mixed results. On the one hand, a news user has access to every great newspaper in the world at a click. On the other hand, hashtag MAGA wagon, hashtag white people tears, hashtag release the memo. It's not as if discontent over information is a new thing. I've been chronicling it professionally for most of my life. 20 years ago, I worked for the NPR program on the media. Oh, there was lots of stuff to get riled up about then. I mean, it was the late 90s. Local newscasts were getting pretty darn schlocky. There was a lot of reenactments going on in TV news. These were highly concerning trends back then. And things seemed bleak. I mean, in 1999, newspaper circulation had fallen by 6 million since 1979. So that 20-year span, newspapers fell by 6 million. Guess what's happened in the 20 years since? Newspaper circulation has fallen by another 25 million. And the information sources that replaced it are Twitter and Facebook. Look, of course, not everything about reading the news 20 or 40 years ago was great. I think newspaper stories sometimes made users feel bad because the news was bad. I think social media sometimes makes users feel bad because social media is bad. Social media doesn't have to be bad. I personally have a mostly positive relationship with my own Twitter feed. But the experience of too many users who have been abused or targeted or lied to or played for suckers, it can't be ignored any longer. We've had one doe-eyed Mark Zuckerberg apology too many and one too many promises to be better. Which brings me to podcasts. Podcasts haven't had a rash of self-conscious listening tours or bouts of societal tsurus because they haven't had to. I just wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post making the case that podcasts are the tonic to the toxicity that abounds in news media. Ezra Klein had Andrew Sullivan on his podcast a few weeks ago, and the two, let us call them public intellectuals, disagreed in a really productive way. Productive for the audience and productive for themselves. Klein acknowledged that it was podcasting itself that allowed for a discourse unavailable in other formats. And in this conversation, it, it feels real. It felt really differently to me. Um, I'm not saying that we convinced the other of anything, but I think we're able to trace the boundaries of what our disagreement actually is a lot more closely. I think the the nature of the format allows for to see, you know, maybe you agree 40 percent and disagree 60 percent. Um, it's a very different experience. And so just that meta level uh, realization of just how different these arguments are had in the different formats that, uh, at least for me, that I'm working in is really interesting. I mean, you, you realize that you're not you're not just having an argument you're having an argument mediated by a platform and you know if you want to agree more maybe have a podcast if you want to fight more maybe go on twitter why do podcasts yield a deeper understanding than almost all forms of electronic media you want to know my big theory i think it's mostly an accident podcast creators will tell you well it's because we're high-minded people and we went in with great intentions and we consciously are trying to expand the discourse and seek understanding yeah but that's how all media starts right usenet groups didn't start with the stated purpose oh let's now bring abuse into the world reddit's mission statement didn't include let's be a haven for conspiracy theorists facebook's founder is still slavishly fetishizing connectivity like he's a surfaced mackerel gasping for air 
Twitter started, actually, Twitter started as a podcast play called Odeo. And that idea was abandoned for something more monetizably quick twitch. And in all this time, in my five years, extending back to the coinage of the word podcast 15 years ago, podcasts have stayed relatively pristine, high-minded, committed to good conversations. Why? Again, I think it's mostly an accident. We got lucky. Most of broadcast media is governed by the fear that if a segment drags or is too challenging or goes contrary to a viewer or listener's worldview, then the audience will instantaneously change to another channel, one that gives the proper mix of dopamine and outrage stoking. But podcasts are different. Their interfaces are really clunky, and they're all curated by the user, right? Everything in your feed you put there. And because there's a ramp up to get to the meat of the content, podcasts are a terrible mechanism for really quick-fire escapism. In fact, they're not quick at all. Most of the very popular podcasts have an average playing length of less than 25 minutes an episode. Podcasts aren't like YouTube. There's no algorithm that once you've listened to one pushes you to a more extreme version of the same thing. Podcasts can't be sliced and misrepresented in an email to your aunt that convinces her that the caravan's on the way. Maybe that's podcasts' greatest immunization of all. Old people find them confusing. Look at the list of the most listened to podcasts. Some are overly long celebrity chit chats, but none are pieces of propaganda. None are close to the original non-bastardized definition of fake news. Contrast this with TV news. The most watched cable news station is Fox. How about online? Well, Fox.com has more visitors than the Washington Post.com. According to the web ranking service Alexa, the most visited website for news is Reddit. In podcasts... The top seven publishers are the New York Times, iHeartRadio, mostly for the Stuff You Should Know series, and then five public radio-related providers. Think of podcasts as a city block, and you're walking down the block, and the windows of all the apartments are open. And if you were walking down podcast block, you'd think, oh, I must be in a nice section of some sort of leafy college town. If you were walking down the block of just regular broadcast, you'd hear a lot of different stuff coming out of the apartments, some shouting, some joking, some lying, a lot of people talking shit. If you were walking down the block of the city that represented what was being conversed about online, I would suggest you get the hell out of that neighborhood really quickly. That said, podcasts are not perfect. For one thing, it does seem like a lot of them are about murders. For another Lots of indulgent improv experiments. And I think about a third of all podcasts open like this. Uh, hi, guys. Sorry. Sorry about the bad quality of uh, last week's interview. We we're using a uh, Fisher Price speak and spell in a bathtub. And uh, oh, yeah, give us five stars. Uh, it really helps people find us. And the killing, all the killing. I would kill about two thirds of the shows about killing. Cull the herd because we've heard enough about the cold. Specifically on the kind of shows I do, the people talking at each other shows, uh, too much agreement. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to the four conservatives of commentary or the four Democratic dudes of Pod Save America and just wish, can't you guys just share one or another of your characters to the other one's podcast, a little cross-pollination? It's not just politically. I listen to the show Pop Culture Happy Hour. Do they ever disagree? They are so here for everything they watch. 
throw Stephen Metcalf at the Culture Gab Fest at them just to see what happens. I am not, by the way, for the record, advocating a Chapo Trap House National Review crossover. Too far. I know it's too far, but there are these relentless silos of agreement that I, as a podcast DJ, can flip around and mediate. But come on, in real life, most of these podcasts are taping a block from each other. Can we have someone just pushing the boundaries of this drum circle of agreement, guys? Now, listen, these are not scathing critiques. These are helpful, I hope, constructive criticisms of a form I love, a form that I've been committed to for five years. And no matter how many of those years you've been here with me, I thank you and invite you along for the rest of the journey, because like I said, it's been a really rewarding one so far. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who, along with Andrea Salenzi, Chris Berube, and Mary Wilson, have been literally the reasons you can hear the show if you're outside the earshot of my actual lips for five years. These producers, by the way, will be hosting a producer's roundtable on Wednesday. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. And you know who deserves credit? In fact, I probably should say their names every day, but I know if I had to, I'd have to make up another damn joke or two in the credits every day. But let us just say now that Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. The gist. After five years, can it all be gist? I mean, pure nub, unadulterated pith? I'm being told, yes, it can, and it has. Nothing inessential. Excellent. Good to know. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.